Romans chapter 8, we are dealing with salvation's unbreakable chain this morning. And uh, this is going to be a passage of scripture that will bring uh, a lot of heaviness. It will bring humility, Lord willing. But the goal in this passage of scripture, uh, and my goal in preaching it, is to get some adoration going in here. And in your life. The scripture, the first part you're very familiar with, and it's directly linked to this unbreakable chain. And we pick it up in verse 28 where it says, And we know, and that word know is the Greek word oida. It means to know beyond a shadow of a doubt. We know with certainty, even though experientially you might not agree with that. We know that for those who love God... All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son that he might become the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he Called, he also justified, and those he justified, he also glorified. There's our text. Many years ago when I was hunting and uh, trying to get my very first buck, I was deer hunting with a, with a farmer who the deer were just tearing his corn apart, so he actually grabbed a gun and joined me. I didn't even think he was that great of a hunter. But we were walking through some really high switchgrass. He was about 20 feet from me. My son was right next to me. We're walking through this switchgrass, and boom, this huge buck just exploded going the opposite direction. As it did, the farmer and I literally simultaneously drew our guns. We aimed, boom, and we literally fired simultaneously. You could, you could almost not distinguish the shots. And we went, we found the trace, and sure enough, we found the buck. This was my first buck. And I and my son and I are high-fiving each other. We're so excited. The farmer's excited for us. He goes and gets the skid loader to, you know, and we're, we're left with the carcass. So we're sort of field dressing this thing. And, and uh, you know, we're just talking. I'm talking to my son, telling you, this is how dad went about getting it. You know, I mean, you know, it really took some good aim. You know, eye, hand-eye coordination, the whole nine yards. And he's eating it all up as I'm telling about this. And as I delve deeper into this carcass, and I analyzed the situation, it dawns on me, that wasn't my bullet that killed that deer. <laughs> I mean, it was absolutely crystal clear upon analyzing this thing that the farmer had killed it, not me. And so all the glory that I was claiming for myself, I had to give to the farmer when he showed up with the skid loader, which I did, not, you know, real willingly, but I did. I mean, after all, wasn't it, you know, you know, my effort, my aim, my hand-eye coordination, my shot? I mean, didn't I put something into this thing? But in reality, it wasn't my deer. I didn't bag it. The farmer did. And I think about that as I think of this passage of Scripture. I think God is sort of like that when it comes to salvation. See, God does it all. But we get so excited about being saved, if we are saved, and rightly so, right? We unwittingly start taking some of the credit. I mean, after all, didn't we have to listen to this message? Aren't we the ones who showed interest? And didn't it sort of get to us, and we sort of responded to the message that Jesus died and rose again? And didn't I have to be sorry for my sin? And didn't I have to repent? And didn't I have to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ in order to be saved? True? So we sort of, sort of take a little of that glory that's really belonging to God. But then as we start to analyze this great doctrine, this great truth of salvation, and we begin to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, then we begin to realize how little we had to do with all of this. Actually, then, as we grow a little bit more, go a little deeper, understand a little bit more, analyze a little bit more, we realized we didn't even have little to do with it. We had nothing to do with it. 
And we come to the realization through analyzation that it's all of God. So I share that with you today because at that point, seriously, at that point when knowledge and analyzation begins to do its rightful work in your life, something beautiful starts to happen. You start to realize that God did it all. And suddenly a deep gratitude starts to settle into you. And you start to love him back because we love him because he what? He first loved us. We, we start to love him back. We show gratitude. And, and from that comes this passionate devotion to him and our desire to serve him and do his business here on earth. Now here is the thought of all the thoughts in this passage that I want to drill down on you and really just put into your mind and into your heart. This is the one I want you to leave with today. Analyzation must lead to adoration. There it is. Analyzation must lead to adoration. When I analyze, I must adore. That's the right thing that comes out of knowing God. Back in 1979, October of 1979, this young upstart theologian, goofy-looking guy named John Piper, was, uh, was studying, teaching up at Bethel Seminary, and, and he was studying in Romans chapter 9, and he was breaking this deep passage, which we're going to get into in the weeks to come. You know, and he's looking at every verb, every noun, every tense, every nuance, and he was analyzing everything, and he was doing it late at night, which would produce a book. And by his own testimony, as he was bearing down on all of this, suddenly God spoke to his heart. And God said to him, I will not simply be analyzed. I will be adored. I will not simply be pondered. I will be proclaimed. And that thought from God to the mind and heart of John Piper was his call to the pastorate. And the church of Christ has been blessed ever since. And I shared with you that story because that story should become our story. Especially when probing the depths of salvation. Because analyzation that does not lead to adoration does lead to something. It leads to Pharisaism. That's what, it leads to being a legalist. Becoming just hardcore. Remember, the people that Jesus spoke with and encountered constantly throughout his life were people who actually knew their Bibles. The Pharisees. The Sadducees, the scribes, the lawyers, they knew truth, but their truth was not, their, their analyzation of truth did not lead to the glorification of God, the adoration of God. Remember, you, you search the scripture, remember Jesus said, you search the scriptures, you analyze the scriptures, and in them you think you have eternal life. Hey, they're the ones that testify of me, and you're missing the point. So this passage here in Romans 8 contains a great chain of theological truths that are virtually unbreakable. And they are sort of an abbreviation of what theologians call the doctrines of grace. And truth be told, it is an absolutely stunning passage of Scripture which effectively shows that God who works all things together for good has been in complete charge from time eternal. And once we've grasped these things to, you know, the degree that we can grasp them. So let's just acknowledge right now we can't grasp them fully, right? Amen? The only right response is worship. Worshiping God. Worshiping the triune God. Worshiping the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. For all of His glory and for all of His worth. Note as we get into this passage, verse 28 says, For we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Now, Paul's assuming we know this, but we, I know by experience, I know by being a pastor, that we don't all get this. Doesn't all seem good to me. How about you? 
Paul's very wording suggests struggle, doesn't it? We know that all things work together for good. You wouldn't even say that unless you're implying that you're struggling, and we're struggling. Anybody struggling out here? He's implying that there is struggle in our lives. And he's connecting it back to verse 18 where he says, you know, I... You know, I, I'm convinced that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory which shall be revealed in us. And so this is still in that context. All things, yes, even struggles, work together for good is what he's saying here. The point that he's making here is no theological truth, none, was ever intended to be simply analyzed apart from its application in our lives, in the present reality. If it does, if you are analyzing the Word of God, if you are studying the Word of God, and it does not produce some application, some change, and then adoration to God, you're not studying right. God never intended the truths of His Word to just simply be, okay, I know that now. The intention of truth is to change my life, change my attitudes, change my actions, change my, my, my lip service and turn it into genuine adoration. Analyzation must lead to adoration. So here is Nebuchadnezzar. He is a He's this great pagan king. He writes an entire chapter in the Bible, in Daniel chapter 4. He writes the whole chapter. Daniel records it. Nebuchadnezzar wrote it. It's his own personal testimony. He's this pompous king who looks out one day and says, isn't this my Babylon which I've made for my glory? And boom, God turns him into an animal-like person for seven years until he looks up and recognizes that God rules in the kingdom of men. And with that, Nebuchadnezzar concludes with this line. He says, And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. Among the armies of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, he does according to his will. And no one can say to him, that is, no one can say to God, What are you doing? No one can stop his hand or even question what he's doing. That's a hard truth, isn't it? The psalmist said, why do the nations say, where is your God? My God's in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. That's another hard truth, isn't it? Here's another one. The psalmist says, the Lord sat enthroned at the flood. The Lord sits as king forever. That's another hard truth. But here, here in Romans 8, Paul reminds us that the rule of God always has something good coming about. Who among us over 40, and some of you much younger than that, has not had the perspective of looking back, right? After some uninvited interruption, some time of sorrow, some radical, unwanted, at the time, change. But you, you can look back from that perspective, you can say, oh, you say, oh, God, I was so foolish. I can see now your hand was there. You were working things out for your good. Have you done that before? Sure you have. Many of you at least. And if you can praise him later, why not praise him now in your struggle? Because all things are working together for good, right? So, now let's make something clear as we get into this chain we are talking about the great plan of God for those who love God. Did you see that? And Look at it again. Look at it. And we know that for those who love God, that's the qualifier here. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. This is a curious designation, is it not? For those who know God. Those who know God in the scripture are called believers, they're called followers, they're called children of God, they're called sons of God, they're called redeemed, they're called saved, but here they're called lovers, lovers of God. And this certainly fits the rest of the New Testament. 
I hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither has entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Later in that very same epistle, the Apostle Paul says in chapter 8, if anyone loves God, he's known of God. Have you ever read that? And Peter says, even though we don't see him, we, we love him. In fact, listen carefully to this. Loving God is so intrinsic, so natural, so fundamentally true of those who place their faith in Jesus. God places a curse on you if you claim to know him and don't love him. That's exactly what it says right here in 1 Corinthians. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Have you ever read that? That's strong wording. It's an assumption that if you've truly placed your faith in Jesus, and I have no illusion that all of you have, but if you've truly placed your faith in Jesus, you love him. Now, it's going to be a love by degree. We can never love God absolutely. But there should be a love there, should there not? The very first time I I visited my, what is now my wife, Marilyn, we weren't even dating then. But the interest level was there, and, and I you know, went out of my way to drive to, to the acreage she lived on. As you turned in the driveway, it was one, like a wishbone. You drove in and it forked off one way and, and, and then fork, the other fork went the other way to two different homes. I didn't know which way to go, except when I looked to the left, there was a wrought iron sign in the yard that said, do you love Jesus? I said, that's where I'm going. I was curious when I saw that. But that is the question here, is it not? That is the question. It isn't do you know the Bible. It isn't whether you can, you know, disseminate sound doctrine. Do you love Jesus? That's the question here. We've already seen in our study of Romans and that the Spirit of God upon our faith in Jesus Christ sheds the love of God abroad in our hearts. Chapter 5 and verse 5. And Paul says in Later on in Corinthians, he says that that very love is what controls us in our walk with God. So, before we go any further and delve into this unalterable, unbreakable chain of God's salvation, I have to ask you the question. Do you love Jesus? Thank you. Do you love him? It is the true evidence that you are a part of this unbreakable chain of realities that is true for God's true children. So with that, let's look at these five unbreakable links in the unalterable plan of God's salvation. Look what he says. Whom he foreknew. Well, let's just look at the whole text. We know that all things work together for good to those who are... Love God to those who are called according to his purpose. And then for those, verse 29, whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is this unbreakable chain. And I would argue that it is virtually impossible to rightly understand this section of scripture and conclude that a truly redeemed, a truly born again, a truly saved, a truly blood-bought child of God could ever lose their salvation. And yet many, many Bible-believing churches unwittingly, unknowingly, ignorantly preach and teach such things. It's not just biblically unsound, it's dangerous I'll tell you why it's dangerous. Because any any church, any individual, any theological paradigm that teaches that a person can be saved and lose their salvation, of necessity, it has to be man-centered. How else could it be? If I can lose my salvation, that means I'm doing something to keep myself saved. That makes it man-centered. This passage of Scripture, like none other in the entire Bible, says that kind of thinking is ludicrous. Theologically ludicrous, just the same. 
Churches who hold positions like that put an extraordinary amount of responsibility on the flimsy wills of men to keep themselves saved. I know this. I had a Nazarene pastor in my home one day. I, I, I was a brand new pastor, new kid on the block, so to speak, and I was my first pastorate. And this guy comes knocking on my door. He was the Nazarene pastor in the neighborhood. He came to welcome me. And then as quickly as he could welcome me, dive right into the controversy. And he started challenging me about the security of the believer, the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, the doctrine that once whom God has truly saved are saved forever. And we went back and forth, and, and he said to me, he says, look, it is your will that trusted Jesus as your Savior, and it is your will that can reject him. So I said, okay. So you're saying to me that I'm kept by the power of my will? He said, yeah. I said, what's 1 Peter 1.5 say? He didn't know. Caught him. It says we're kept by the power of God for salvation ready to be revealed in the last day. I looked at him and I said, I'm so glad that my flimsy will isn't keeping me saved, but the power of God. So, and you say, well, yeah, but is this, does this comply with other scripture? Yeah, look, let me give you a prelude to what's to come. Chapter 9 and verse 16. Chapter 9, verse 16, just a page over. Paul says, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who shows mercy. Have you ever read that? Oh, say, well, yeah, okay, there, but like anywhere else? Yep, James says the same thing. He says, of his, he goes a step further, of his own will, of God's own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Well, I mean, I mean, you mean our, our, our wills aren't involved in our salvation? Of course they're involved in our salvation. Whosoever wills, I get it. Yes, they're involved. We're not robots, for crying out loud, but God, by his spirit, is the one who makes us willing. What do you think of that? He's the one who makes us willing. And please notice in this passage, all these pronouns, those, those, those. He says, those who he foreknew, it's those that he predestined. Those he predestines, he called. Those he calls, he justifies. Those he justifies, he glorifies. This is what links every one of these great theological truths together. According to this scripture, there can be absolutely no break in the chain of events if God is the one who has done it. So what do we do about that? Well, analyzation must lead to adoration. What, what else do you do? You give glory to God. That's what you do. And thank him for his great plan. And so with that, let's get into this. These five links, this, these unbreakable links in God's great plan. And thank God if you're a part of it. If you're not, a, if you're not that is, if you do not know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you'll hear, you'll hear me say this later. The invitation doesn't change. Trust Jesus. Place your faith in Jesus. But here's how it all comes out. First of all, he says, for whom he foreknew. The first is foreknowledge. This theological term, biblical term, is far and away the greatest point of controversy amongst Christians as it pertains to God's order of salvation. The problem is not in the prefix for. The problem is in the root word, knowledge. The word for means just what you think, before. Something happening before. Okay? We all agree with that. Everybody agrees the word for means to know before. Okay? The problem is having a biblical understanding of of the word knowledge. Listen carefully. To many, knowledge refers simply to information. This is very important for us to understand the differentiation here. To many, knowledge simply refers to information. God has information on us before we're born. Of course he does. But these individuals view the foreknowledge of God having in his possession before we were born information about us. 
that becomes the very cause of him choosing us. Think about this again. Those who take the word foreknowledge to simply mean to know before, they take the position that God looks down through the portals of time. He sees, he sees Ryan there. He says, Ryan, he's a sinner, but looking like a pretty good guy. I think he's going to respond rightly. I'll choose him. Do you see how ridiculous that sounds? By the way, that puts, that's not the doctrine of divine election. That's the doctrine of divine reaction. That's God responding to us. That puts salvation depending on me, not on God. I don't want it on me. I want it on God. If God said salvation was dependent on me, then we'd believe that, but he doesn't say that. Salvation is all of God. It's all of God. And if it were true that God just looked down through the portals of time and picked people out who he could see would trust in Jesus, that makes it dependent on us, not on God. And it's all because of this misunderstanding of the word knowledge. The, the word doesn't, isn't just talking about information. The word knowledge or to know in the Bible always has to do with choice, love, and intimacy. Okay, so you, that's why some theologians like to, like, to, like to loosely translate the word foreknowledge for love. He loved you before. So, like, for instance, uh, and I won't be exhausted with this, but in Genesis chapter 4, it says, Cain knew his wife. Now, what does that mean? Cain had information about his wife? I don't think so. This is the same euphemistic terminology that is used when Gabriel says to Mary, you're going to give birth to the Son of God. She says, what? How can this be? I have never what? I've never known a man. What's she saying? I don't have information on Joseph. I'm pretty sure she did. I don't know. I don't have any information on men. No. I mean, she was a teenager by now. She knew about men. No, it means she'd never been carnally intimate with another man. We know what that means. When in um, Amos chapter 3, God says, Israel only have I known. You only have I known. He says that to Israel. What are we supposed to gather from that? Well, God really didn't know much about the other tribes on the earth, but he knew Israel, so he picked them out. Now, that's ridiculous. The word means exactly what you think it means. It means I am intimate with them. I have chosen them. I've set my love and my affection upon them. That's what the word means. When Jesus, there's a great judgment to come, and some of you, I fear, will be a part of it if you don't turn and repent and place your faith in Jesus. In that judgment to come, Jesus says to these group of people who are going to be saying, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not cast out demons in your name? Have we not done many wonders, wonders and wondrous works in your name? Jesus said to the, says to them in Matthew 7, 23, I never, what? I never knew you. What's he saying? You know, I really didn't know you really well. I mean, I didn't have a lot of information on you, and that's the reason why you're not saved. No, there was no affection set upon them. They didn't have any affection for Jesus. I never knew you. Jesus said instead in John 10, I know my sheep, my sheep know me. Is he talking just about information there? Of course not. When Paul says in Philippians 3, I want to know him. I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to know the fellowship of his suffering. Is he saying I just want information, more information about Jesus? No. In each case, the word no involves a choice to love. And yes, this is the very groundwork, the very foundation of the doctrine of election, which we'll get into in the weeks to come. And I know that makes some of you feel kind of, you know, kind of, it's the word of God. We have to go through the word of God, okay? No apologies. But this is the, this is the very groundwork, the very foundation of the doctrine of election, which we will delve deeper into. And Peter tells us 
that to those, he says, to those who are elect according to the, there it is, the foreknowledge of God, our Father. So here is this little definition if you're interested. And this, it's, it's, a, it's a little wordy. It's my own little layman terminology for foreknowledge. Foreknowledge is the divine affection of God, of his own will, set upon those who would, he would save in his own plan for his own purpose. I'll say it again. Foreknowledge is the divine affection of God, of his own free will, set upon those he would save in his own plan and for his own purpose. Now, I realize, before we move to the next chain, I realize that the doctrine of election is troubling to some of you, maybe many of you. But seriously, what's the alternative? What is the alternative? Have you ever thought about that? What's the alternative from this? A God who doesn't have absolute control over all things? Is that the kind of God you want? You want a God that sort of punts when things don't go well? A God who's wringing his hands up in heaven? Oh, see, what's, what, well, look at their, they're going to kill my son. I better do something here. That's ludicrous. You want a God who just sort of, you know, makes changes on the fly? What's the alternative? That's unthinkable. And while we may not understand why God does or does not save everyone, we can be eternally grateful that he saves some and that he'll save you if you repent and turn to Jesus. And by the way, this, doesn't, this doctrine doesn't change one invitation in the Bible. When Jesus says, come unto me, come unto him. When John 3.16 says, whoever believes in him has everlasting life, believe in him. When John finishes up the book of Revelation, chapter 22, and verse 17, and he says, whoever desires, let him drink of the water of life freely. Drink of it. It's yours. The invitation is there. It doesn't change anything. It just means God's in charge of this whole thing. I kind of like that. But even if we understand this, know this. Analyzation must lead to adoration. Or we've not truly worshipped God. We haven't studied well. Analyzation must lead to adoration. Okay, now let's move on to predestination. He says, they're predestinated. Whom he foreknew, those he also predestined. Now there's a word we love. We should. The Greek word means to mark out beforehand. So here's the idea here. If foreknowledge is God's divine affection set upon us in eternity past, predestination is the divine path that marks out to to get to us. He marks out to get to us. That's what it is. The word, we get our word horizon from this word. God marks the path, the horizon in our lives. And all this means is that God has a plan. He's working out his plan. It can't be any other way. It's the pathway of sanctification that makes us more and more like Jesus. Because you can see, these he also predestined. Look at it. Why did he predestine us? Why are we predestinated if we, if we know Christ is our Savior? He says, to be conformed to the image of his Son. That's why. Remember what John said in 1 John? He says, he says, There's coming a day where we're going to be like him, for we shall see him as he is, right? This is our predetermined destiny. This isn't fatalism. Fatalism is is the belief that all of the affairs of men are sort of controlled by just the elements that are out there, whatever's in the air, or maybe some little sub-deities that are out there. That's ridiculous. I love what R, how R.C. Sproul put it. Fatalism is just the, is the theology of chance. Sproul writes, 
The great superstition of modern times is focused on the role given to chance in human affairs. Chance is the new reigning deity of the modern mind. Chance inhabits the castle of the gods. Chance is given credit for the creation of the universe and the emergence of the human race from the slime. And here's his key point. Yet chance can do nothing because it is nothing. To say that something has happened by chance is to say that it is a coincidence. This is simply a confession that we cannot perceive all the forces and casual powers that are at work in an event, unquote. Instead, followers of Jesus embrace the doctrine of predestination that the God who made a plan in eternity past has marked out all the boundaries and the path leading up to us coming to know Jesus. And once we come to know him, there's a purpose in all of that that we might start to look like him. The follower, the lover, the blood-bought child of God who calls God Abba, Father, happily embraces predestination. A term that ties a loving God with a loving plan and a loving pathway of divinely led events that while not always understood, includes me. Includes you. And divine predestination, listen carefully, does not negate human responsibility. Because that's where some of your heads are going to go right now. Well, she marked it all out. Whatever. No, that is never the case. And this is powerfully illustrated in the death of Jesus. I mean, look at some of these verses here in Acts chapter 2. Look at what it says in Acts chapter 2. This Jesus... Peter's preaching this message, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. The very fact that Jesus' death was a definite plan and foreknowledge of God did not negate the responsibilities of those who killed him. And if you didn't get it there, he says it again a couple of chapters later. He says, for truly this, he's praying to God here. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel's, Israel, rather, to do whatever your hand and your plan had what? Predestined to take place. There are still, all those categories of people were still responsible for what they did. But through it all, God had a plan. We are not to think that during the, the trial and the cruci- and leading up to the crucifixion of Jesus, Father God was going, oh, this thing is going nuts. I can't, how, no. This is why Paul says in, I'm sorry, John says in Revelation 13 that Jesus is the lamb slain from when? From when? From when? From the foundation of the world. Have you ever read that? It was all part of his plan. So where does predestination head? Well, look at it. Look at the end of verse 29. That we might be conformed into his image. That word conform means exactly what you think it means. It means to look like. That's what it means. I remember being in a, having a Bible study with a uh, in the first church where I was pastoring with a bunch of guys, this guy was a major druggie in the community, and he had some of his friends. One of his friends had, we were just doing some Bible study. One of his friends had really long, greasy hair. And he looked at me, he goes, you don't like my long hair, do you? I said, I don't have any problem with your long hair. He looked at me, he goes, hey, listen, man, Jesus had long hair. I said, really? How do you know that? He goes, I've seen pictures. He was dead serious. Well, the truth of the matter is, God is in the business through his predetermined plan to make us look more like Jesus. There is an inscription on the wall in the Alamo in San Antonio, Texas. And it's an it's a honor to a guy by the name of James Butler Bonham. And here's, literally, this is what it says. James Butler Bonham, uh, no picture of him exists. This portrait is of his nephew, Major James Bonham, who's deceased, who greatly resembled his uncle. 
It is placed here by the family that people may know the appearance of the man who died for freedom. Okay. I think we understand, though, what the point is. This guy looks just like the one we really want to honor. We don't have any pictures of Jesus. Or do we? You are a picture of Jesus. Now, it might not look real good, but it should be coming more and more into focus all the time, right? To be conformed to the image of his son. This is the end game. To take on the form, this is what it means. And we know what this is like. I mean, for 12, 15 years, I've been, I've been hanging around the office. I've heard guys, Lisa and Abe and others go, oh, that is so Sarah. Or that is so Caleb. Or that is so Daniel. Naming my kids one after another. I want to say, don't you mean they're so like me, right? Because I'm the one who started all this. Whatever gesture or whatever it is that they're talking about. God predestines us, marks out the path, so that once he gets a hold of us, we start to look more like Jesus for a world that desperately needs him. And we have expressions of godly people. My wife talks about her mother-in-law now with the Lord being the first Jesus I ever saw. You know what she means by that. First person ever looked like Jesus. How do you look? How are you looking? This is the purpose of predestination. And we can really delve into the meaning of these words and what, but listen, analyzation must lead to what? Adoration. We'll go quicker now because he says, and to those he predestined, those he also called. That's, this is... This is what theologians call the efficacious call, the effective call, the call that's going to work. It's not the general call where everybody, you know, many are called, few are chosen. It's, it's, it's not the general call. It's the, it's the effective call. This is the call like Jesus. It's the call like Jesus to Lazarus. Remember, Lazarus has been in the grave for four days. Jesus comes up. He says, Lazarus, come forth. And what did Lazarus do? Well, I'm, I'm kind of liking the decomposition state right now, Jesus, if you don't mind like to stay here for a while. No, he gets up. He answers the call. This is this kind of a call. Those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of, son, of his son, that he might be the first more born among many brothers. And the ones he called, I'm sorry, he predestined, these he also called. This is an effective call. I can relate to this. I can so relate to this. My good friend Nick, who shared Christ with me in the, in the factory, had had a motorcycle accident a couple of years earlier. He spoke with a very haunting, halting rather, not haunting, but halting voice. He, his words were, it was painful just to listen to him. But I had to listen to him because God was drawing me in. He was calling me in. The call is the draw. Jesus said, no one comes unto the Father, that no one comes to me unless the Father draws him, John 8, 44, right? Pulls him in. He pulls him in. When, when, when I was a little boy at supper time, we, all, we, we played around the neighborhood. We just, all my friends were right there in the neighborhood, so all it took was somebody to open the back door and say, Pat, Mike, Bob, Michelle, let's go. Time to eat. And we, you know, but usually that was from one of my brothers. I didn't really care about that. So I just keep playing. But when my dad, when he opened the back door and he yelled, holy smokes, I dropped whatever I was doing. And I was compelled to come in because I knew what happened if I didn't. But that's not really a great illustration, to be honest, because the calling of God actually makes us willing. It's not like we come just kicking and screaming. It might be like that at the beginning, but when we bow our hearts to Jesus, there's no kicking and screaming anymore. There's nothing but surrender. And the glad surrender it is. And so when we look at these things, we realize that analyzation must lead to adoration. 
And those he called, he justified. We've already we've been studying this term for eight chapters. This is the whole theme of Romans. Right? Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God, right? This is God's act by which he does this divine judicial work. And when we place our faith in Jesus, he declares us righteous. By the virtues of Jesus, we are declared righteous with God. And you can see this link here. Foreknowledge is an eternity past. Predestination is that path taking us there. The calling is the thing that draws us to that point of salvation. And justification is the point when we place our faith in Jesus, the point in time I was justified on September 6, 1982. This is the point in time. But I'm really glad it doesn't stop there. Because analyzation must lead to adoration. And the great adoration here is the last theological term. Those he justified, he also Say it. He glorified. This is the power of the truth behind Philippians 1.6. He, God, who began a good work in you, justification, will bring it to completion. Glorification in the day of Christ Jesus. He's going to do it. I mean, anybody here go to college but you didn't graduate? Appreciate the hands. And some of you go, I'd raise my hand, but it's awfully embarrassing. Listen, there are no dropouts in God's program. The ones he picks out in eternity past, determines, sets his affection upon, he will save and he will glorify. Did you notice the tense? It's the same tense as all the other ones in the chain. Past tense. Aorist tense. Theologians... Uh, not just theologians, Christians for the last several years have been using this ineloquent term that salvation is already and not yet, or already but not yet, or already not yet. You get the point. There, that is, we, we have it now. It's in our possession. But the full realization has not taken place yet, right? That's the idea. And no other place in all the Bible capsulizes that truth than this one right here. It's already, but it's not yet. Remember the context of this chain. The context of Romans 8 is the Spirit of God's work in our lives, even though we have to struggle, even though we suffer, even though we're having all kinds of issues in our lives. He's not just talking to believers, he's talking to those who suffer. And listen, the glory, the the glory no suffering is worth comparing to is the glory that is as good as yours right now, even though you got to wait for it. Here's something you don't have to wait for. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You say, wait a minute. Weren't you just saying the guys, the ones that God saves are, you know, are those he's set his affection on in eternity past? Yes. But I don't know who they are. All this doctrine does is tell me that God is in control, and I wouldn't want it any other way. The invitations in Scripture don't change. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a command to every one of you. And some of you have never done that. You've never believed on the Lord Jesus. You've never embraced him for his great love for you. You've never believed that he died for your sins. You've never believed that he rose again for you. You've never accepted him as your Lord and Savior. Today is the day. Place your faith in him. Now is the accepted time, the scripture says. Now is the day of salvation. That invitation doesn't change. It's for you. Believe it. If your heart is being tugged and you can sense the call of God on you right now, take it to justification. Believe on the Lord. You say, well, I don't really understand this whole chain. Well, welcome to my world. I just know it's taught in Scripture. It exalts God. It takes us from analyzation to adoration, and that's a good place to be. 
All this scripture does is make God big. I like that. You can't really make God bigger than he, than he already is, but you can magnify him, right? The Bible says magnify the Lord. When you magnify something, you don't make it bigger. It just seems bigger. It's like Lucy. I just thought of this, remember, in the, in the Chronicles of Narnia. It's like Lucy when she sees Aslan for the first time after a long time. What's the first thing she says? She says, you look bigger. Remember that? He says, I'm not It just seems that way to you. And when we plunge into the truths of God, he doesn't get bigger, but he sure seems that way to us. Especially when analyzation leads to adoration. Will you pray with me? Our Father, it is our desire today, having looked into this great passage of Scripture, that we would go from just students to true worshipers of Jesus Christ. We thank you for your great wisdom. Oh, the depths of the wisdom of, of both the wisdom and knowledge of you, dear God. How unsearchable are your judgments and your ways are past finding out. And we humble ourselves and acknowledge that today. And yet, Lord, you have given us a great plan of salvation. And the invitations in your word never change. I pray for people in this room right now who they've heard truth all of their lives, but it's never been a reality to them that today would be the day that they right now, right now, that's you, dear friend. You're, you're, you're kneeling there. You're not kneeling. You're sitting. You ought to be kneeling. Your heart is broken. You see that you're a sinner. You know you're lost. You have no hope. Right now, would you just ask Jesus to forgive you? Why don't you just believe in him? Why don't you just acknowledge your sin? Why don't you just believe that he died and rose for you? Why don't you just accept him right now into your heart and trust him as your Lord and Savior? Just do that, and you'll be saved. Lord, we realize that someday we're going to all, those of us who know Jesus are going to appear before you. We're going to get in heaven, and we're going to say, oh, wow, it makes sense now. I pray you'd help us to see some sense in this, in the here and now. Taking our analyzation, turning it to adoration. You've given us much to think about, Lord. I pray you'd help us to do that now in Jesus' name. Amen.